0: Tom's Australia tour runs from June 6th to the 30th, and you can find out more at tomknolls.com slash Australia. Sahanao <laughs> bhavatu, sahanao bhunaktu, sahaviryam karavahavai, tijasvinava dhittamastu, ma Thank you for listening. I'm Tom Knowles, and this is my podcast, The Vedic Worldview. I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about two subjects that are interrelated. The first is the role that charm plays in the process of embracing evolutionary action, the ability to follow charm, and the ability thereby to engage in life in an evolutionary fashion. And the second part which I'm going to weave into this understanding of charm and evolution is the role played by change and how to deal with change, how to understand change, how to be someone who is not negatively affected by what we refer to as change, whether we refer to that as major change or minor change, change as the inevitable and continuous nature of the evolutionary process. I'm frequently asked how to understand fully what people hear me say, which is that nature's way of marking the path of evolution is that there's a charm trail. What does that mean? And I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about this and then what the relationship is between this worldview and having to deal with the very real disappointments that sometimes can arise when change comes. And really these subjects are linked inextricably, and it would be good for us to explore that link as well, the relationship between nature's way of guiding us with charm and also dealing with change. Let's talk about charm first, the idea that when you wonder what to do, any time you wonder what to do. The answer is going to be that deep inside your psyche, embedded deep inside your inner consciousness, is what is referred to in the Vedic worldview as "hride," H-R-I-D-E. "hride." Hridde is an attempt to turn into an onomatopoeia, that is to say, a word that sounds like the thing it's describing. Words like splash, sizzle, flap, clap, and so on. There are about six thousand of these words in the English language, which are the human attempt to use the vocal apparatus to imitate the thing that's being described. These are dictionary words. Boom is a dictionary word that is using the human vocal apparatus to describe what it's hearing. So hridde, ridde, heart. Rdde, rdde, rdde. What is that fine level of feeling? The fine level of feeling is that layer of you that rests right on the cusp of your connection with the one indivisible whole conscious field. That one indivisible whole conscious field in the Vedic worldview has a name also in Sanskrit, which is Brahman, B-R-A-H-M-A-N, Brahman. Brahman means totality. And one of the big differences between the Western worldview and the Eastern worldview is the absence of the article, quotes-unquotes, the, T-H-E, the. It's not the totality. The is the article we use in English to separate a thing from ourself. The totality, the universe. Rather, the Vedic worldview simply calls it totality. Why? Because totality is an element of your own inner self, of your own inner level of being, totality. And so my deep inner consciousness, my least excited state, has at its base a field, being, capital B, being. That is a transcendent field, a field that is beyond regular thinking, beyond intellectualizing, beyond individuality. Being is one's own inner field that is connected or part of that oceanic consciousness which is at the basis of the entire creative intelligence of the universe. My individuality at its finest, quietest level can be found to be informed by that totality. Totality is conceiving and constructing the evolutionary process, conceiving and constructing, governing and becoming the processes of change that are bringing about ever greater sophistication. And totality is interested in experiencing itself in multifarious forms, moving back towards recognition or moving back towards reunification through the experience of love. Love is always directed to the self. When I feel I love somebody, what I really love is anything about them that's like me. <laughs> we, we have to be very honest about this. If we meet somebody who happens to share an experience with us, or share a view, their likability goes up dramatically. If we meet somebody who expresses views that are disparate to our own or the opposite of ours or expresses likes and dislikes that are absolutely nothing to do with our own, we find it much more difficult to get an excuse going in our mind as to why we should spend time with this person. There are people who say opposites attract. You know, I agree that uh, there may be some variety attracts, that, you know, some variety allows for some attraction, but generally speaking, what we're attracted by is the self. If I'm sitting with someone and I look at a menu and I've only met them for the first time and they're also looking at a menu at the same eatery, and I say I'm attracted to the pasta with a cream sauce, And they say, that's exactly what I was going to order. And then I noticed that she or he is kind of grooving along to the music that's playing over the loudspeakers. And I say, that's interesting. I notice that you like that music. That's my favorite. And they say, that's my favorite, too. We're getting off on a very good footing. If, on the other hand, I say I'd really like the fettuccine with the cream sauce, and they go, oh, yuck. You know, I couldn't bear the thought of having that. And... You say, "Oh, I like this music," and they say, "Really, that trite, you know, stuff being performed by that performer who I don't like." <laughs> you know, we're not getting off on a good footing. We're not finding any unity points. The way that nature works is to take that one indivisible whole consciousness and allow it to bifurcate. When it bifurcates, that means it splits into many. That many individuated consciousnesses find their way back to the oneness by looking for unity points, looking for shared experience. And so then, when our individuality is looking for the evolutionary track, what is that? The evolutionary track is the track of progressive change, of the growth of our individual sophistication through the joy of finding shared experience if not in other humans then in nature around us sometimes people will argue with me and say well what about you know reclusive people who live off in a cave and you know i've met many such people and have in fact even spent months and on occasions years with those people who you know they're not antisocial they do in fact enjoy explaining and describing their experiences outside the range of their blessed solitude But their blessed solitude is not limited in terms of having shared experience. They find that the way that trees shake their leaves and sparkle with sunshine is attractive because there is affinity. A feeling of nature around me is experiencing somehow the same things that I am. The birds that come and land and drink the water and I watch them behave and so on, They all behave in a way that feels as though it's very self-like. Nature itself has a quality of being able to be experienced as having affinity with oneself or I'm finding an interest, a fascination in discovering how nature appears to be moving in the way that I myself move. Perhaps I'm investigating the extent to which I am indeed nature. So nature, instead of being a thing different to me, a human, nature is being explored as someone's nature. There is a nature. Not many, many natures. There is a nature. And what is that nature? Well, ultimately, it has to be my nature. So then, in our search for greater knowledge, for greater fulfillment, for greater joy in life, we're going to find it through having shared experience having affinity, having and finding unity points, as I love to call love. Love is all about unity points. Finding unity points, finding that in which there is indeed evidence of the one indivisible whole conscious field behaving as many, but behaving thematically. The many behave with a theme. How do I find that theme? In what way do I, how do I discover this quality of love, this quality of selfness in the world around me? What my masters in the Vedic tradition would call unity consciousness, the ultimate state of consciousness that there is. The answer to that is, first of all, we have to discard notions that the self is this little individualized thing that what I am is limited by a body first of all you know the body was born somewhere the body has a mind and some emotions attached to it that were subjected to varying qualities of parenting that i am a product of you know the environments in which this body has grown up the schools that the mind and emotions and body went to what happened to the body at different times its maturation its movement through adolescence and so on that all of this, when wrapped up together, becomes the history of what is the self. The Vedic worldview is that that is a tiny, tiny fragment of what the true self actually is. When one learns to meditate in the Vedic meditation method, the self suddenly is discovered as something much larger than what had been previously assumed or experienced. That is that one starts to experience deeper and deeper, quieter levels of consciousness very quickly in that 20 minutes of meditation where the mind is able to step beyond even its memory of where is the body sitting. Any Vedic meditator will be able to tell you that although the mind retains consciousness, it's able very quickly to go beyond into some experiences inside that are so fascinating that I can't recall even what I'm doing or where I'm sitting or the fact that I'm meditating. Occasionally, my mind may be drawn so deeply inside that I literally stop thinking, even though I'm conscious. The mind brings an end to the thinking process. And what is it that can cause that? So in our technique of Vedic meditation, we use a particular type of mantra. These are bija mantras, bija, B-I-J-A. In Sanskrit, it means a seed, a seed mantra. Mantra, M-A-N-T-R-A, mantra is man. In Sanskrit, this means mind. And tra, T-R-A, which means a conveyance or a vehicle or an instrument. In this case, it's a vehicle. Mantra, mind vehicle. Bija, seed. A seed sound, which when you use that in a particular effortless fashion during the technique of Vedic meditation, the mantra spontaneously becomes softer, quieter, and fainter. And as it does so, it leads the mind into more and more charming thought states. The mantra itself is not used as a focal point or as something that you know you would try to concentrate on or achieve unique focus on. In fact, as a mind vehicle, it's something akin to being a taxi. The mind begins to experience the mantra, and as the mantra changes in different ways in its sound quality, it becomes subtler, fainter, and quieter. Those subtler layers of the human mind, the subtler strata of the human mental experience, intrinsically are more charming, and there's a reason for that. The subtler layers of the human mind are imbued with the quality that is coming from the source of thought. Underlying the entire thinking process is that source of thought, that field of being, which is described in the Vedic literature as ananda, or bliss. Bliss should not be mistaken for ecstasy. Bliss is not ecstatic happiness. It is a supreme inner contentedness. When the mind begins to move in the direction of that increasing subtlety, It's experiencing the mantra repeating, but the mantra is not repeating with reference to any intellectual idea. It has no intended intellectual meaning. It's a sound. That sound spontaneously becomes subtler, quieter, and fainter. And as it does so, it becomes intrinsically more charming because those subtler strata are closer to the field of being, that field of pure inner contentedness. And so then, the mind will even step off of the mantra and experience other thought forms besides the mantra, which is perfectly legitimate in our practice, because the mind is fascinated and charmed by not so much the content of the thoughts, but the context, that is to say, the layer from which the thoughts being experienced. It could be even an everyday thought when the mind steps off the mantra, but the thought itself is fascinating and charming Not necessarily because of its content, but because of the layer from which the thought's being experienced. And so this subtler, quieter, more settled experiential phenomena that are occurring during meditation, the mind being attracted inward, occasionally the mind reaches the subtlest level of thinking, which is absolutely so attractive and so charming. And then it will step beyond that into the pure contentedness, the ananda, the bliss of being. Being, or that bliss of that state, causes silence to occur. It's not that if you silence the mind, then you'll experience being or bliss. No, there is a relationship between bliss and silence. But it is not that if I silence my mind, then I'll arrive at bliss. No. It's that if the mind continues to experience ever-increasing levels of inner charm or happiness, eventually the saturation is so great that contentedness is arrived at. And this will cause the mind simply to fall mute. So here we are with the mind touching the pure inner quiet state of absolute contentedness, causing the mind to fall mute. We have silence as a product of the experience of bliss. And then the mind has there located the true nature of the self. And now we're going to make a distinction and spell this with a capital S, self. This inner, quiet, conscious field, the field of pure creative intelligence in its unmanifest form. Unmanifest means pure potentiality. It has the capacity to bifurcate into any number of hundreds of thousands of thoughts or qualities. That field of being is, in fact, the deep inner transcendent self. The field of being is not just one's own personal inner patch of silence. The Vedic worldview holds that this is, in fact, the source of all of the universe. That being is the unified field of all the laws of nature. It's the unmanifest field of pure consciousness. Consciousness that has not yet gone into specificity. Unmanifest consciousness that can make itself into not only any thought, but in fact makes itself into all of the wave functions that then bifurcate into subnuclear particles all the combinations of atoms and molecules, all of the fundamental forces of nature that make up all of the phenomenology that we see in the world around us. So this is the discovery of the true inner self, capital S, and adds to our sense of not just who we are as an individual human being, but what we are. Not just who I am, but what I am. And as we keep experiencing this day after day, and in our recommendation that you practice meditation for at least 20 minutes each morning and each evening, the mind regularly experiences and adds into its sense of self, includes in its sense of self, that underlying field of being. So here's our starting point. Without that establishment in being, without that experience of the big self, all of the advice that comes, that follows from that, is in fact worthless. The idea that you should then go out and start following charm without the experience of being, if the small self, the small identity, the small understanding of the self, which is just, you know, I am my mind, which is a product of the upbringing and the environment and where the body was and that, you know, I have a limited lifetime and that's the lifetime of my body. And when my body dies, that's the end of myself. That kind of understanding of self that I am simply my body and my individual mind. If we were to say to that consciousness, oh, just go follow charm, then what would that mean? Well, you know, if somebody who is fond of a particular kind of drug decides they're just going to follow charm, then they're just going to go off and have more of that drug. If the sense of self is very small and I don't have awakened that deep, inner, quiet, fine level of feeling that sits right on the cusp of the absolute field of being. If I don't have that awakened, then no, you shouldn't follow charm as your prime directive. You should use your intellect and use logic and go by what others have experienced and try to make your way through life on that level of whatever kind of self-counsel you can give yourself as to the logic of either making a move and causing change, or maintaining the status quo. However, as meditators, a whole new opportunity opens up for us, which is to take that deep inner experiencer, that field of being, into the relative world, that enlivened level of the deep inner self, the capital S self. When that whole thing has been awakened inside, then our individuality has had added to it the fundamental basis of the entire evolutionary process, that which is bringing into action all of the sequential elaboration of all the laws of nature required to bring about evolution. When that is the baseline from which we're experiencing, we can now begin to rely upon, let's let the mind identify what it is that is a charming proposition or what is not so charming. And so at any given moment, there is a proposition either to go into action. Will I stop talking right now and go have lunch? Or will I continue talking? What is it that's the most charming? And for the person who has this regular deep experience of the inner field of being and has united, as a result of that experience, has united that fine level of feeling with that ultimate cosmic experiencer, then the best criterion by which to either act or not act is not simply the intellect and logic, but that fine level of feeling which can detect the evolutionary move, either stay still and stay right where you are, or move. Move means cause change to occur. Begin to take all of our experiential apparatus, our mind, our emotions, our body, our senses, into action now. Or simply sit back and continue to enjoy non-action, non-activity. Which of these is correct and to what extent is any one of them correct? Because it's not black and white, as in, you know, either I'm fully engaged and fully moving or I'm sitting back in silence and not moving. A blend of these may be occurring at any time. And so we have in this an opportunity to really stay on the evolutionary track by allowing charm to dictate. So what is the experiment that can be done, the research that can be done by any Vedic meditator as to the applicability of this instruction, follow charm? You can take some time, five minutes, five hours, five days, I'm just using fives to have fun with it, and say, you know, for these five minutes, or for these five hours, or for these five days, or use any number of hours, minutes, or days you care to, I'm going to do some research and really take note. If some proposition is made to me from the outside world to act, go somewhere, do a thing, eat a thing or not eat a thing, experience a thing or not experience a thing, then I'm going to quietly consult that fine level of feeling inside. If the proposition to action feels charming, I'm going to move in the direction of the charm and act. If there's no charm, then I'm simply going to not act. Or if there's the opposite of charm, which is aversion, that even though intellectually a thing might seem logically sound, for example, somebody might say, come to a party, and logically it sounds perfectly sane, that you would go to that party and meet people or consort with people you already know. But if the fine level of feeling says, doesn't feel charming to me, then the research would be, don't go. Or if logically, it doesn't seem intellectually to be all that sound, but the proposition to action on the fine level of feeling feels like, yes, green light on that. I feel like it. I'm going to go then we don't wait for the intellect to ratify or the intellect to give its permission for us to act or to not act. We follow charm. We follow charm or we follow its opposite, which is there is no charm, lack of charm. We might even go as extreme as saying aversion and don't act in those cases. As the instructor in the methodology, I'm going to make a research prediction. And the research prediction would be if you are established in being enough, then what you find charming always will be the direction of evolution. And what you find not charming always will be the direction in which evolution has ceased to support that activity. It's not evolutionarily life-supporting to move in that direction. But you do the research yourself and see. you know To see to what extent am I finding this helpful and to what extent am I finding it not helpful? And so then here's the other part of the research theory because all research is guided by an initial theory as to what the outcomes of the research might be. The theory would state that, and this is the theory that you know, you're know you either going to verify and validate by doing the research and having the empirical evidence or you're going to find that you know experientially it doesn't work out for you. The theory would state that, If you follow charm, and things only ever get better as a result of doing that, and let's look at the opposite of that, you discontinue following those things which logically make sense but are not charming, that don't bring you any extra joy, that if you do this, if you follow this, if this is your guiding navigational principle, follow charm or don't act if there's no charm, And if, as a result of that, you find that there's nothing but disaster, (laughs) then, then you haven't yet established yourself enough in the field of being for this to be a working principle for you, that you need to continue practicing your meditation and establishing that inner quiet sense of self more in order for the fine level of feeling to in fact be the primary navigating principle and it may be that in addition to the fine level of feeling you do need to have some you know intellectual verification and validation allow the intellect to ratify action or not but as you grow in your inner experience as you grow in what we would call enlightenment where in the state of enlightenment that inner quality of being, capital B, being, the inner self, the big S self, has united with small self to such an extent that the two states are inseparable. This is what enlightenment is, that there is no difference between big self and small self. It's all one self. When that experience is being had, then absolutely the only guide, the only counselor toward action or non-action is going to be that quality of charm. And so we can do research throughout our meditation career to see to what extent this in fact is applicable to oneself. And the experience of hundreds of thousands of practitioners of Vedic meditation all over the world has been that when change is due that you can afford to embrace change prospectively and enthusiastically following charm. If charm says change now, then when you make that change, it won't be before time. It'll be change that is happening at a time that is ideal, that is circumstantially capitalizing on opportunities. That is, you will find yourself more frequently able to be in the right place at the right time, and with ever-increasing absence of you being in the wrong place at the wrong time that what people would normally call luck where you just happen to be standing in a particular place at a particular time maybe it had become charming for you to have some delicious organic corn chips and you thought well i don't have any particular intellectual reason to have corn chips but corn chips seem to be in the charm factor here so off i go to pick up beautiful organic corn chips wherever they happen to be and On the way there, I encounter someone that, as a result of my moving in the direction of the charming corn chips, I ended up actually meeting an appointment, which appeared to be something that needed to happen. And if five more seconds had passed, if I'd hesitated or delayed, or if I'd gone too early, or if I'd sat around thinking of a pros and cons list about the corn chips and allowed the corn chips idea to be subjected to an intellectual analysis of you know, here are 15 good reasons why you should have corn chips and here are 10 reasons why you shouldn't have corn chips and it looks like there are more pros than there are cons and so, okay, let's go and walk over to the store and pick up those corn chips. It may have been that, as a result of all that intellectual analysis, we missed the window of opportunity. Whereas, you know, if the thought to have the corn chips, we just act on charm and start moving, it may not have even been the corn chips. It may have had nothing to do with you consuming corn chips. It's just that that was the charm bait. That was the bait that was going to get you to act, to get you to be at the point of intersection at a particular time where you needed to be at that time. You may not have even come home with any corn chips, but you might have come home with a new alliance or a new job or a new interesting friend. Or you may have also been removed from the wrong place at the wrong time, and while you were off on your way to getting corn chips, something happened at the place that you departed from that you're very grateful for having not been there at the time. And what was it that made you move? You had a charming thought about getting corn chips, and off you went, and you got out of the way of some danger. As you start to experience more and more through your research in this, that Opportunities that you could never have conceived of yourself or arranged or organized yourself as the individual small self. That more and more frequently you're in the right place at the right time in ways that you could never have possibly individually orchestrated or organized. And that you were also removed from places where, had you been in those places, you would have had experiences that wouldn't have been helpful to your evolution that as you see this happening with greater and greater frequency, that you begin to realize that that fine level of feeling, which people in the West call intuition. Intuition just means the super subtle capacity to act on the sensory apparatus that you already have. Taste, touch, smell, sight, and sound are activated at such a super acute level that without even intellectually having to engage the fine level of feeling which is operating through those apparatus taste touch smell sight and sound are able to detect the future in the making and to cause you to move spontaneously in directions that are evolutionary for you the overall theory here is that your individuality is an asset of the broader unified field the big self your individuality is not your individual property that you can decide intellectually, I think I'll put it over here, or I think I'll put it all over there, because I have an idea about what I need. This is more a devoted, if you like, a surrendered point of view, that I'm surrendered to Brahman, totality. I'm surrendered to my true nature. My true nature is not this individual body, this individual intellect, this individual mind that's been educated in all kinds of faulty ways by the world around it that's not really, that can't explain what I am. What I am is Brahman, totality. That Brahman has an asset, one of its assets, it has many assets, billions, trillions of assets, but one of its assets is this package that includes my body, my mind, my emotions, and so on. And so my big self moves its property around through the instrumentality of charm. Charm then, or desire, becomes the primary Motivator of the process of evolution. It's the thing that gets everything moving. So, then, now we'll, let's examine the concept of change. What happens when change comes? First of all, we need to understand about change. Change is non negotiable. A better word is inexorable, but people don't use that word that much. Inexorable means uncompromising, change is going to be happening there's no possibility of non-change. And change is not something that happens in only in the form of major events. It is happening constantly and incessantly. Change is happening incessantly. When we don't notice that change is happening incessantly, occasionally it dawns on us that change has happened. That is to say, we discover it almost in retrospect. Something that could have been very obvious to an outside observer, watching change, watching change, watching change. And then suddenly the person who's primarily engaged in the experience of change gets a big surprise and says, oh my God, change has happened. But actually that change that we thought was a sudden event had been building up in increments over a long, long period of time. As moisture rises from the earth, and builds up in the atmosphere, and there are thermals carrying that droplets of moisture up into the sky. And somebody who has a device that can tell barometric pressure is able to predict that if this continues, clouds will develop. And if that continues, there'll eventually be a giant thunderhead and a cumulonimbus cloud with masses of electricity in it. And then there will be a sudden downpour of rain and moisture and maybe even hailstones. But to someone who doesn't detect any of that happening, all that they knew was they're sitting in their living room and there was a sudden downpour, a cloudburst of dramatic, climactic change. But the fact is that change was building up over a long period of time if only you had the subtle perceptual capability to see it. Change absolutely is inevitable. So, either we can be surprised by change, which really, you know, we need to improve upon things if we're constantly surprised by change. (laughs) If, If our life is filled with surprising changes, we need to become more perceptive. We need to expand and make our sensory apparatus more acute. But either we can be surprised by change, shocked by it, upset by it, Overtaken by it, and then be, you know, dumbfounded by it. Or we can perceive using our subtle sensory apparatus, which we gain from meditation, we can perceive the future in the making. You see, all the seeds of what can happen and what is going to be happening are present right here, right now. You don't have to go anywhere. Right here, right now. All the seeds of change that are germinating to cause change to be the predominant phenomenon, those things are available to our senses right here, right now. The future in the making is going on right here, right now, in the present. The entire future is right here in the present moment in seed form. To what extent can you perceive it? To what extent do you have subtle sensory access to it? When you have that subtle sensory access, then you are able to acknowledge that change is happening incessantly. And when others are surprised by change, you're not surprised by it because you've been experiencing it building up over a long period of time. You have lead time. When you have lead time, you can embrace the phenomenon of change enthusiastically. You can be somebody who is able enthusiastically to embrace the unknown because you have infinite capability, creative intelligence, you have adaptation energy, you have the ability of stability to meet and engage the ever-changing world interactively. Rather than you suddenly got surprised by change that had been occurring for a long period of time anyway, you suddenly became aware that change had happened And you assigned an event status to it. Oh, this is an event. Change has happened. Actually, it was happening for a long, long time prior to that. But you've called it an event. Change. Oh, that surprised me. I didn't expect that. So now, instead of having the creative intelligence, the adaptation energy, the stability to meet that failure to accurately expect things, that inaccurate expectation, rather than meeting that with... Adaptation and interactively, you meet that reactively. You go into fight-flight mode. You start wanting to fight the change, or you want to run from the change, and neither of those activities will actually stop the change from happening. So you end up having stress reactivity instead of being functionally interactive. Change is not a thing that is an event. The idea that change is an event, you know, oh, there was this event, I called it change. This is a complete illusion of the ignorant mind. There is nothing but change going on at all times. To what extent are your expectations accurate? To what extent are your expectations, and to what extent is your consciousness fine-tuned to this continuum of evolution that we call change? If you are very fine-tuned to that continuum, of evolution, then you won't see change as an event. You'll see change as a continuum to which you're constantly adapting and with which you're constantly interacting. And constant interaction and adaptation to change is what evolution's all about. And being surprised, shocked, and turning change into a "quotes unquote event is an indication of a need for more meditation. <laughs> That we need to be practicing meditation with greater regularity you know twice every day and you know over a longer period of time to refine our sensory apparatus so that we don't get into this mentality of change as an event change is simply the reality of the relative world it doesn't happen in event packages it's not a package that's an event it is a continuum And, you know, once we have heightened consciousness, there is nothing that is going on that's not inside of our range of expectation. We expect everything. Everything that does come to pass is expected in advance of it coming to pass. And so this more intuitive approach to life and living is the goal of the practices that come out of the Vedic worldview, notably Vedic meditation, which needs to be learned and should be practiced twice every day. So these concepts of change and the concept of learning to expand our inner sense of self and then to learn how evolution expresses itself and how to have our expectations accurate, we only have to learn how nature itself beckons us into evolutionary activity it beckons us through the instrumentality of charm. To what extent are we able to detect that? We'll see through our own personal research into it, which I've described already. So frequently, people will say, Ah, you know, I don't know why I did that thing. I knew it wasn't going to work. Or they miss an opportunity, and they might say in retrospect, You know, I knew I should have been over there. I had a hunch, but I didn't follow it. and Because I didn't follow it, I missed that opportunity. Or I had a great idea, and I didn't act on the great idea, and then now I have to sit back and watch while somebody else evidently got the same idea, and now they're doing my idea, but they're doing it badly. And why is that? Well, it's because you hesitated. You didn't act on the fine level of feeling. You didn't act on that charm. But life is long. And since life is long, we have multiple opportunities to use our research into charm, big self, and our embrace of change, our enthusiastic embrace of change, to our advantage and to be able to live life in ever-increasing joy and love. Jai Gurudev. If you're enjoying this and feel that you're getting something from it, there's a way you can help us make this commercial free. Go on my website, look up the link for the podcasts, and make an individual donation. Thank you.